Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to talk about the politics of economics and one question in particular, how can we know how politicians are doing, how can we know how countries are doing if we don't know anymore how to measure what the economy is doing? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. It's a great pleasure to welcome Diane Coyle to this podcast for the first time, and I'm sure not the last time. Diane is the new Professor of Public Policy here in Cambridge. She is an economist, among many other things. But she's been working recently particularly on this question, which might sound a bit dry, but it really isn't. The question of how we actually measure what happens in an economy and how do we know whether we're picking up the things that we need to know. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to get to some wider questions like unemployment, the dollar. We're going to start with GDP. We've also got Helen Thompson with us, who knows about the international political economy, Chris Bickerton, who knows about European politics. These things all connect, I hope. But let's start with that GDP question. And Diane, I know you've written a lot about this in the past. It is the basic measure of economic activity. It has been for a long time governments stand or fall by the growth figures. The definition of a recession is in GDP terms. It has to be two successive quarters of negative growth. We depend on GDP basically to know how things are going. And it is a long-standing but pretty out-of-date measure. So just tell us a bit about what it does measure and what it doesn't measure. It's less than a century old, actually. Dates from after the Second World War. And the very concept of the economy as a separate domain from life dates from the early 20th century. So although it feels like part of our everyday mental furniture, it's actually a relatively new way of thinking about economic progress. And of course, we get obsessed about the quarterly figures. Is it 0.1? Is it 0.3? But it isn't a real thing. It's an analytical construct. So it's not like you're trying to take temperature or measure the distance of something. It involves lots of judgments. It involves collecting lots of data and mushing them all together into into a single number. And they get revised very often, the data collected by surveys. There's massive uncertainty about it. And yet it's increasingly being used both to measure how politicians are doing, but also for very fundamental choices. So, for example, Greek GDP, they used to make it up before the financial crisis because they wanted to get into the euro. And literally, make literally, it up. literally, the just Euro- pluck a number out of the air that sounded right. It was dressed up a little bit more than that, but truly, the Eurostat statisticians would not approve the Greek national accounts because they knew the numbers were being fabricated. That meant that they could borrow a lot more because borrowing sustainability is measured in relation to GDP. And subsequently, since the crisis, all of their austerity measures have been set in relation to GDP. What is the deficit or what is the surplus as a proportion of GDP? So this is having real consequences for everyday life in Greece, obviously, and the hardship that's causing people. There's also a treason trial that's been going on for years against the chief statistician who is installed by the creditors. 
He's a very highly respected international monetary fund, economist and statistician, and he's been put through this continual legal process, which could, in theory, end up with him going to prison, because there are people, politicians in Greece, who charge him with treason because he made better GDP figures than the ones that existed before the crisis. And so people make them up, and in this country, in many countries, they've got this kind of fake precision to them, 0.2, 0.3, doesn't mean anything. Yeah. If it was accurate, what would it be measuring? So if we could actually pin it down in a way that we thought was reliable, what is the kind of activity that it's meant to register? It's meant to be all marketed economic activity. But there are all kinds of fudges involved because we include government and that by definition isn't in the market. We exclude all of unpaid work in the home because there's no market for it. But we do, for the past couple of years, include illegal marketed activity like prostitution and illegal drugs. So the construct is that it's economic activity in the market and it gets used then as a measure of economic well-being or progress and that's clearly something very different. There have been some very long-standing critiques. It doesn't give you any sense of sustainability. We're depleting natural resources. They don't get accounted for. And And, and the more we do of that, the better it is for GDP, if it's activity. Yes. And hence, um, if there's a natural disaster, GDP goes up because of all the reconstruction that's needed. And there's no accounting for all the assets that got lost during the disaster. So it comes out of the period after the Second World War. The other presumably big difference is that the kind of activity that it was designed to pick up on then was primarily industrial. That was the engine of growth. Now, we may or may not be moving into a new phase of economic life altogether, where industrial activity is not the main engine of some of the productivity and some of the growth, and we're missing a whole part of the economy, which is the digital bit. Is that possible? That it's actually, never mind it's inaccurate, that it's missing something that's central? Yes, and this is what I'm working on uh, these days. We've not had an industrial economy for a long time. It's a four-fifths services-based economy, so you would ask anyway, what is productivity when there's no product, and how should we be thinking about that? But in everything from how do we count what jobs people are doing to are we missing whole areas of activity and economic welfare because we just don't collect the statistics on them, the digital transformation of the economy is making... GDP just a really bad fit for understanding economic progress now. So, for example, in the occupational classifications, which are internationally agreed, set by a UN committee, there are 50, 50 categories of painter. You can be a portrait painter, you can be a painter of boats, you can be a painter of artificial flowers. I'm not making this up. Um, That's three. How do you get to 50? <laughs> I'll show you the, the document if you're really interested. But the whole swathes of the economy, and particularly new activities just aren't there at all. You know, if you're a webmaster or a social media guru or any of these kinds of... It doesn't register at all? It doesn't, doesn't register. Would that just come out as some kind of manager or...? Yeah, a manager, or there, there are some general um, IT headings that you could put yourself under. But if you're somebody who's tweeting for a train company... Or a podcast. Or a podcast, it's just not obvious where you'd define yourself. And then there are the free digital goods. We don't know how to account for those. We don't know how to deal with the fact that companies are using cloud computing now so instead of investing in their own server equipment which added to GDP they're putting on their credit cards which subtracts from GDP there are just a myriad of different ways in which what we're measuring now 
doesn't bear all that much relation to the main thing that's happening in the economy. The thought that I had about GDP is that the way you're describing it, it's there's clearly a measurement problem. So there are things that people do that are some that you would think of are to do with economic activity, but are not measured, are not captured by the figures. If we were to manage to translate something that seems a bit intangible, like tweeting for a train company, into the GDP figures, would the problem of GDP as a category disappear? The reason why I ask is that when you say marketable economic activity, presumably there are lots of things that come up as marketable economic activity, but that don't contribute a lot in terms of, I don't know what the word would be, value, or not valuable, but they may be very present in the GDP figures. So as well as a measurement problem, is there something about GDP which is that it's not very good in interpreting what are more valuable activities or, or create what are the sources of certain kinds of value versus other things that are maybe more parasitic as economic activities that are not really creating value, certainly not producing anything. You know, I think of the activity of financial markets. There's a huge amount of just preying on the transactions of others, but presumably that gets counted in GDP figures as well. Yeah, that's a very interesting example to choose because it's the definition that's changed the most over the years. The way the financial sector has been measured has changed several times. Funnily enough, every time in the direction of increasing its parent contribution to GDP. Currently, it's something called financial intermediation services indirectly measured, which essentially measures how much risk banks are taking. So the final quarter of 2008 was their apparently biggest ever contribution to GDP growth, which is a bit absurd, really. And, you know, you're right, there was a long debate, Simon Kuznets in particular, who's often thought of as the father of GDP, argued that things that were essential but not contributing to well-being or things that were actively bad should be subtracted rather than added. The merit of GDP for economists is that it's not arbitrary. There are all kinds of indices that try to subtract bad things, but the weights people choose are inevitably arbitrary. And if you're using market prices, then that gives you at least some clarity about what it is that you're measuring. So the problem isn't so much that it's measured the way it is, but that it's used the way it is as the main indicator of how governments are doing, how economic the economy is progressing or not. I think there's another issue, though, isn't there? There's a question about using it for well-being, which doesn't actually really make any sense the moment you start thinking about it. But it is still necessary in order to decide monetary policy and fiscal policy. Then I think that we get into this difficulty where, even if you take it in its own terms, it's incredibly difficult to measure. So if you take an example back from 2008, in the third quarter of 2008, the Eurozone had actually entered recession. But the ECB did not know that because of the way the the errors that were in the errors as calculated in eurozone gdp in the first two quarters of the year so in july 2008 the ecb raised interest rates at a point when the eurozone was actually in recession it was a terrible policy mistake mm-hmm. but it had a context but the reason why they didn't know it was a mistake was because of how difficult it is to measure gdp but was that a time lag issue was that because people had been fiddling the figures no they, well, they hadn't been fiddling the figures i mean i'm not saying anything about greece in that respect but that generally i mean you're talking about a figure comes out and then they're revised several times over. Now, if you're growing at, say, 0.2 or 0.3 for the quarter or the 0.1 that we've just had in this quarter, if it actually were next time put down to a minus 0.1, which is not that big of a a change in the the scheme of things, and then we had another, we would be in a recession. But actually, it could go up to 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, that's probably a bit high on the adjustment score. But the other thing that matters here is any adjustment affects the narrative that comes out as to what the economy is doing. So a good example of that is is the claim in 2012 here that we were in a double-dip recession that actually wasn't the case. It actually did quite a bit of political damage, I think, to the coalition government at the time. But actually, there wasn't a double-dip recession in 2012. They're, they're changes that have profound consequences for the way that we end up thinking the economy's doing and what's going on in politics. And something I've always wondered, as they get revised, is it becoming more accurate? I mean, it's a bit like, so, in an election, when you have recount after recount, actually, each count is not more accurate than the previous count. It's just at some point you stop because you've run out of time. Does more information come in so that you can have confidence that over time the final figure is something close to reality or is it just a constant adjustment? No, it's generally that you get more information. So in that sense, you're getting closer to... More information, but also more reliable information or just more information? Uh, Just um, a more complete sample because a lot of the data is collected by sampling, sending surveys out so you get more returns from the forms so you just get a better sample and bigger picture of, of what's happening. And, you know, I think Helen's absolutely right. These stories that people tell about the economy are incredibly influential. And the well-known example here was calling in the IMF in the late 1970s, when the economy looked like it was, first of all, in a massive inflationary boom and then in a big bust. And those figures got revised to a much more even path for the economy over time. And Dennis Healy, I think, actually said that if he'd had those figures then, he wouldn't have needed to call in the fund at all. And was part of what happened then that people misremembered the sequence in that there is now a sort of understanding that something had to be done and then when it was done, the Labour government began the reforms that eventually led to Thatcherism and that that's what started to write the economy and you're saying the economy was writing itself before that. So you might do a counterfactual history where Thatcherism never happened. I think that that one's complicated because of the fact... Alan's not going to buy that. Because of the fact that the loss of confidence in Sterling plays in that story. That's true. So can we come back to now? So there's one question that persists. It doesn't really filter into these broader narratives, but there is this productivity puzzle and this long-term anxiety that even as the British economy in some respects does well or better than some of its competitors at the moment, it's not doing particularly well on growth, where it lags behind is in productivity. Is it possible that we're not picking up on forms of productivity that don't register in the kind of data that we gather, that we are doing better because maybe we are more digital? Well, my sense is there's a bit of that. But we know about the problems that have given Britain a lower level of productivity compared to other G7 countries for a very long time. You know, we've been a fifth behind the United States in productivity for decades now. So we know about problems like so, poor so infrastructure skills. It's not just digital. <laughs> so you're suggesting, Diane, that the productivity puzzle is not such a puzzle? I mean, everywhere I've read, everyone has said it's a puzzle and we can't really explain it very well. So you're suggesting that it's actually... We know very well what the problem is. I don't think we know very well. I think it's less of a puzzle than people think it is. Clearly, there are very surprising things happening in the economy. Growth rate is currently very slow, and all of the anecdotal evidence points in the same direction to a slowing economy, but we've still got a very low unemployment rate, and wage growth hasn't risen very much at all since the financial crisis. This is a a sort of puzzling set of relationships to explain for economists. So I don't think it's that the puzzle vanishes because of digital. So one of the things that you're doing in in the, the work you're doing now is suggesting a new set of measures or a broader set of measures 
that might over time replace GDP. So that's you know, a good, ambitious <laughs> goal um, and change the entire world and international order. You want to have measures that pick up on some of the things that we're talking about here. So maybe not explicitly value, but certainly things like sustainability. Also to measure things like inequality, essentially. that You have a, and we'll tweet the link to this, you have a really interesting chart as to how countries would be doing on your measures relative to how they do as measured just in raw GDP data. So some countries that do well in GDP terms, particularly the oil-rich economies, places like Saudi Arabia and some of the other oil-rich states, do much worse on your measures because they do much worse on inequality and they do much worse on sustainability. And when you see it, it kind of makes sense that these are very unequal and in some ways unsustainable models of economic growth. And GDP doesn't pick up on any of that, right? So GDP, you could be a very unjust, unequal and unsustainable, but very economically active society. And in GDP terms, you're doing well. Really good. Yeah, to get a little bit philosophical for a minute, GDP is related to the fact that economics is based on utilitarianism. So what it cares about is the flow of consumption or income in any given time period. So by definition, you're not going to have any sense of sustainability in those measures. And we could be depleting our natural assets as much as we like, having a great time now, but that would not be sustainable. And so the idea is to instead look at a set of measures rooted in capabilities approach, Amartya Sen, Martha Nussbaum, and you wouldn't be directly trying to measure people's well-being in any way, but you would try to measure what assets they have access to that allow them to lead the kind of life that they want to. So it's measuring six kinds of assets and the access to those and the distribution to those because the utilitarian approach doesn't tell you anything about distribution either. If Saudi Arabia is kind of down in your sort of revised um, economic landscape, where does the UK sit? Is it higher than we expect? Is it lower down? Does it fare well on your new set of measures? We would be less well off than we think, but... I don't think our ranking would change dramatically. And that's not surprising because in all of the international rankings, the Scandinavian countries rank very high. Even on a capitals-based approach, they'd still do so. We're less well off than we think because we are more unequal? Because we're unequal and because we haven't been accounting for a depletion of natural assets, the pollution, the absence of uh, natural flood protection, the loss of natural flood protection, the shoddy infrastructure, and the fact that in lots of parts of the country, people don't have access to good transport or good broadband. So presumably in those terms, the United States does even worse? Yes. So some of the ones that kind of go up in your chart are some of the Baltic states, for instance, some places which are quite sort of ahead of the game in tech terms, in digital terms. They're trying to sort of reinvent themselves, often because they don't have many natural assets. They can't deplete them because they don't have them. So the Estonias of this world go up and the Saudi Arabias go down. Yes, and um, it's not a particularly surprising ranking, I don't think, but it expands the gaps between countries. I think what's interesting about this, and indeed the whole concept of rankings, though, isn't it, is, is how economies interact with each other. Because you could put the Baltics up and then you could say well what about the indicators that show that actually they're losing population because of migration to more prosperous economies you can put the oil producing states down but actually we're all dependent on the oil producing states and I think this is in some sense part of this whole obsession that we have with measuring almost performance that gets in the way of understanding how our economies work in an international sense and also what our collective global well-being is. But why do you think rankings are so 
compelling. You know, politicians always love to boast about being above France. It's, it's, it's partly about... Yeah, Estonians are going to love you, Diane, when, it's when you change about, the world. It's partly about politics, yes, because it's a way in which parties try to win elections is to say, look, we're doing better either than the party that previously was in power or some um, other country. But it is something that I think is is extremely distorting, this trying to situate one's own national economy in a context in which you say we're better or mm. we're worse and, and we must do better because it's, it simply treats national economies as national economies when that's not what they are. And so do you think it's the dependency that particularly doesn't get picked up? I mean, your measures can't take account of the extent to which, say, a small Baltic state might still be very dependent on an economy that is depleting natural resources and is falling back on your measures and yet it's absolutely anchored, to say, to Russia. Yes, an environmental natural capital is obviously linked between different countries also. But it's more problematic in, in the Baltic case. Well, I'm not saying their relationship with Russia is clearly profoundly problematic, but I would say their relationship with other members of the European Union is profoundly problematic as well in a different sense, and that is the fact that so many young people in the Baltic republics go into more prosperous EU economies in order to find work for at least parts of their life and the growing evidence is, is that they don't go back again so actually the demographics of the Baltic states don't look very good at all. There is a sort of a zero-sum element to the economic interaction between nation states and so I suppose in some ways it's you know there always has to be a Saudi Arabia not in, not in, not in inequality terms but in oil exporting terms. Well in any international economic system there will be a... Well, well, if well there you, has to be someone um, who's providing the well, energy supply. Well so the German case is what strikes me so Germany has a sort of celebrated economic model and often says everyone must be like Germany well you can't have everybody being you know a systematic successful exporting country some have to be importing the goods and so the ranking becomes a bit more complicated because if you celebrate one for being successful in a certain way to what extent is that success coming at the cost of others further down the ranking and i don't know whether you can actually get away from that problem obviously things that are supposed to add up like balance of payments surpluses and deficits mean that exactly as you say we can't all be massive exporters of the massive surplus but this is an area where the figures actually don't really give us a good picture of what's going on. They are collected separately by different countries and they don't add up actually in practice. And they don't capture the international production chains that are so important in certainly manufactured goods but increasingly services now. So America's bilateral deficit with China, if you corrected for the value-added imports that China has to buy from the States and from Germany and Japan and other countries, then that reduces that bilateral deficit enormously. So it's another area where we've got a story being told by some figures, which is actually a really misleading picture of the truth. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Can we talk about two things that we touched on here? One is unemployment. The other is sort of international power politics. So on unemployment, what is the government boasting about? It's boasted for a while now about 
this being the most successful jobs producing economy of the the big ones so we may be down as you say on productivity but we've got a lot of people in work we've got many more people in work than some of our big international competitors but there is an increasing debate about whether these raw figures capture the quality of the work or even the kind of work I mean, we talk about jobs we know and we've talked quite a lot on this podcast about the longer term anxieties around the robots coming to take the jobs but before that happens if and when that happens there's still and we're right in the middle of it a transformation in the kind of jobs that people do so one of the big boasts of the government the current government is that long-term unemployment is down you know, on that measure the number of people who are out of work for a year or more which used to be the killer figure in recessions in the past particularly say in the 1980s now indeed recovering from the big recession of the financial crisis long-term unemployment is really low so very few people are out of work for more than a year but that might not reflect improving quality of life if the kinds of precarious unstable flexible jobs that people are doing are what's preventing long-term unemployment do you get a sense whether the, the sort of unemployment figures that we have are capable of picking up on any of this do we know from the data what kinds of jobs people are doing? We don't know enough about this. And the Office of National Statistics is looking into getting a better handle on on the ways of working as opposed to the sheer numbers. It's pretty clear that zero-hours contracts, self-employment and so on have been increasing substantially. And now about one-fifth of the workforce in jobs is in some non-standard kind of work of this of this kind but exactly what they're doing and where and how much they're getting paid for it isn't clear it looks like there's a split between the casualized labor force that's not very well paid very insecure and more affluent professionals who are choosing to work in this flexible way and set, set out on themselves and that's been enabled by the way companies are, are transforming but we don't have a definitive handle on that and of course what we want really is for lots more robots to put people out of jobs because then the productivity numbers would go up these go hand in hand good for gdp good for gdp robots are good for gdp i should think so yes <laughs> i'm not sure that we're measuring this very effectively not least for the reasons you just said it's quite hard to I do think the sense that this has been a different kind of employment recovery has acted as a constraint on the way in which the Bank of England has decided monetary policy, particularly when it was first looking to go back to trying to not get back to monetary normalcy, because I don't think that's possible, but put interest rates on an upward trajectory. Some of the noises that were coming out of the banks seem to be saying, look, these unemployment figures are somewhat softer than they appear, and that actually it's not a good measure of how the economy is doing. And indeed, I think you might say now, look, how is it possible that the British economy has employment statistics that are probably as good as they've ever been and yet yeah, has just had a, a quarter of supposedly at least 0.1% growth? Yeah. That is a difficult thing to explain, particularly as there's no obvious pressure for wage inflation without saying actually things aren't what they used to be. And I think if you look at the broader picture as well, there's just obviously a group of people who are in a very fragile position, very vulnerable. They might have a mortgage that's only sustainable with very low interest rates, very low savings. Most people have almost no savings. And you know, I completely understand why 
the Bank of England would hesitate. I, mean, I think the unemployment issues is interesting. I mean, for economists, deciding what the relationship between levels of unemployment and inflation is very important, or levels of employment and inflation. And what we have at the moment is this interesting sort of paradox, I suppose, which is a population that is, by any terms, almost you know, universally employed, but there isn't a sense that the labour market is tightening in a classical way that drives up wages and then starts to influence government policy making, especially monetary policy. And it must be related to the change structure of the labour market over the last 20 years and the kinds of work that we're talking about. I mean, I think it's not a coincidence that the, I read this a couple of days ago, the highest growing company in the whole of Europe is Deliveroo. Now, Deliveroo is the kind of iconic company where you see people delivering food on bicycles in a labour sense in a very sort of precarious situation with very curious contracts. I think that tells us something about the British economy, which is that for a long time it wasn't built on this insider-outsider model which a lot of continental European countries had, which was basically if you're in a job, you're absolutely fine. You're an insider. But the outsider is, you know, the person who's unemployed. And those figures are extremely high, especially amongst the younger parts of the population. And so the UK was always seen as it doesn't have this insider-outsider model. Today, when you look at it, the distinction needs to be made internal to the labour market. So whether you have a job or you don't have a job is much less of a differentiator than it is in other countries, where that's the decisive fact, because the quality of the labour contracts have been absolutely transformed. And the spectrum actually is not unemployed versus employed, but it's within the employment category. That's very interesting. So do you think it's better to have the option of a delivery job than to be a 22-year-old Spaniard where the unemployment rate is 30% or so? So I think this is a, a big debate. Um, I mean, generally, the UK model was kind of fated as being better than having these high levels of structural unemployment, especially amongst the young. And I would have always have said, I mean, it's got to be better to have access to some kind of work, everyone wants to work, I think, than to be just systematically denied the possibility of entering the labour market. But the way the criticism was made of those continental insider-outsider models is that they attacked the structure of the labour market as being closed and too favourable to insiders. Now, the implication is you liberalise the labour market, make it much easier to hire and fire. That's where it becomes you know, more complicated to say, well, it's better to at least have access to a delivery job than to be you know, unemployed. Whereas if you think, how has Spain managed to pull itself up out of the crisis? It's by deregulating highly its labour market. And so you start to get into this choice between either high levels of structural employment or high levels of precarious employment. Neither of them seem a great It's not a great trade-off. It's not, no. Because that's one of the things that I've often wondered about here, which is unemployment as a basic political measure is often the primary measure of how well a country is doing. And high levels of unemployment are thought to be intolerable and low levels of unemployment are thought to be a general good. And yet in European terms, there's such a range. I mean, it's astonishing from this country where it's now below 5% through to countries where youth unemployment, I mean, in Greece is still 50% and in Spain, Portugal, in Italy and so on. And yet, I mean, if that's the primary measure, these countries should be chalk and cheese. And in some ways, they're not. So something must be happening to the quality of work or the nature of work, which means that those models are closer in some ways than they might have appeared just in the raw data, or at least are moving closer together. Because otherwise, apart from anything else, the politics in these countries would be so different, wouldn't it? But there is another... I know it is quite different. I'm not saying it's not. But there is a missing thing, and that is freedom of movement within the European Union, because actually there's been a de facto single labour market. So one of the means by which the southern European countries have coped with high levels of youth unemployment is by having people in their 20s and 30s come to Britain and Germany 
in particular. So there is actually a safety valve that the European Union has provided. Now, you might then say, well, particularly in Britain's case, that that has had political consequences in terms of Brexit, so it's not like it's free from politics, but you might say the politics of it turned up in Britain, at least as much as it turned up in Spain or in Italy, though I would say it's turned up in Italy, I mean, because Italian politics has been turned upside down since 2008. But I think that tells us that it's not really a safety valve. I mean, if it was a safety valve... I meant an economic safety valve. But even if it was an economic safety valve, you'd presumably have, within the context of this wider single market for labour, some sort of corrective mechanism. And you don't. I think the Spanish growth success over the last few years has been through internal domestic reforms to the labour market where they're able to compete on on wages. There's been an internal adjustment that's taken place there. The Italian case, that hasn't happened in the same way. There's been you know high levels of emigration out of these countries, but often for very short periods of time. But you still have a radical difference between two countries in a similar situation, very different politics. I think one of the problems is that there isn't a very easy adjustment mechanism across the European economy. We still have these national economies that compete against one another and the benefit of one comes at the expense of the other. And another thing, and I've talked about this before, I'm slightly obsessed with it, which these figures don't pick up on, is changing demographics and age profiles. And so we talk about youth unemployment and compare it to youth unemployment in the past, in the 30s or the 70s. There are just so many fewer young people than there used to be in these countries, in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, even in Britain... And there are so many more pensioners and there are so many more relatively mature workers as well. And there's the question of the retirement age. But none of that gets picked up by these figures. These are radically different kinds of societies where 50% youth unemployment is catastrophic, except if there are many, many more people aged over 65 than there are aged between 18 and 24. It has a completely different dynamic to it. In my um, alternative universe of asset-based measurement of the economy, you would capture it a little bit through a human capital measure. So how would that work, in in terms I might understand? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You'd look at the prospective future income of the population over the time profile that you're looking at. If you're discounting 100 years ahead, then you look at the demography over the next 100 years. And could that pick up on questions of immigration too? I mean, how that this was going to be sustained over time? How it was sustained between countries, no. But as a contribution to the economy and the extra human capital you're adding, yes. And, you know, the paradox about immigration and the reaction people in Britain had to it that led up to the vote is that we were the California of Europe. People were coming here because it was so open and flexible and successful. And that was a great addition to the economy. A reduction in migration numbers will reduce our potential growth rate even further. I like the way you call it the vote, because we have so many different things we talk about here, but we all know which one you mean. (laughs) (laughs) And is that necessarily the case? Is it not possible that there's a relationship between the open structure of the British labour market and its relatively poor productivity performance? Because it is true that if you can hire and fire without too many constraints, then your incentives to train your existing workforce, I think, are much more limited than if you basically... If you don't train them, they're going to be, you're going to be stuck with them and they're not going to be working very well for you. That's correct. If the new migrant workers are very close substitutes for the existing workforce, but almost all of the empirical work, with I think only one exception, which looked at the recession period, found that the skills of immigrants were complementary to rather than substitutes for the skills of the workforce already here. And so they were filling skill shortages much, much more than they were competing directly for, for jobs. But Michael Gove will say, you're just saying that because you're an expert. Oh, Michael Gove likes me. I'm one of the experts he likes. Oh, OK, good. Uh, he's, he's a changed man. Can we talk about one last thing? 
I particularly want to ask Helen about this, and it, it relates to all of these questions because there are so many different ways that we measure and anchor economic activity and understand it. But one of the features of the global order that we have, which is continuous over this long story, is that the dollar is the global reserve currency. And the world that we've grown up in, that's been a fact of life. I mean, that's the one thing that hasn't changed for a long time. But it's under pressure now, and we hear stories in the papers, people saying that for a variety of reasons, some of them deep geopolitical tensions, some of them, frankly, can be summed up with the word Trump, that there's a feeling this period may be coming to an end. And if it did, that wouldn't change everything, but it would change a lot about the world that we live in. A world without the dollar as the global reserve currency is very different from the world where the dollar is. Should we take seriously the possibility that all of these things that we're talking about, one of the big things that we rely on, maybe we shouldn't rely on it for much longer? I think that it's certainly true that we can't get very far in understanding the economic and indeed geopolitical world today without thinking about the position of the dollar as the world's global reserve currency. And I think that there's no doubt that a number of States, particularly Russia, China, Iran, but not exclusively those countries, I probably mean those in terms of most consequential, are chafing about the dollar's position. They find the consequences for them extremely difficult. And indeed, the consequences for these states are extremely difficult. And we can see a certain set of moves that each of them in different ways have made, particularly in respect to the purchase of oil and gas that have been about trying to find ways in which China as the world's largest now, the world's largest oil importer, can buy oil other than in dollars and that Russia and Iran, possibly, then this is much more delicate, Saudi Arabia could in the end sell large volumes of oil to China in that currency, i.e. in China's own currency and China has indeed set out a new contract in which Oil can be sold to them in yuan in exchange for gold, or backed by gold, I should say. So I think if you look around, you can see evidence that the states that are primarily disadvantaged by the dollar's position as a global reserve currency are trying to to deal with it by looking for an alternative. But the bottom line is, is there isn't an alternative. That, so the there dollar. isn't an alternative currency. There isn't an alternative currency to the dollar, and. The volumes on this exchange, I think it's in um, Shanghai, that have been sold with this new yuan contract, you know, are tiny compared to what had been sold on the other two exchanges where uh, oil is sold. Now, maybe in five years' time, ten years' time, that will change, but I can't see anything to see that this is a game-changer in itself, however much the Chinese might um, like it to be. And one of the reasons why it isn't that this question, I don't think, will be played out primarily around the oil question is, is because the banking financial side of the international economy is based on dollars and there's a both a what might be called an onshore dimension to that so the dollars are issued by the Federal Reserve Board and what's sometimes called an offshore dollar credit system or a euro dollar um, system which is very much bound up with what happened in 2008 which one way of describing what happened in 2008 is that lots of non-American banks who had a strong need for dollars, found themselves unable to um, get them and essentially had to be bailed out by the Federal Reserve Board. So you kind of have an international monetary system that both onshore and offshore works for dollars that causes profound problems for 
the financial sector and indeed for states, as Brazil and China have found out in different ways over the last few years, when it doesn't work. So even if you have, if you like, pressure from the oil side of it to get away from dollars from the states that I've been talking about, nobody's got any idea whatsoever about how to substitute dollars in the way in which the international monetary and financial system works. So now, one part of that was completely unintended. And I think that the Federal Reserve Board didn't actually understand until perhaps till 2008 how this offshore dollar credit system worked. But we live in the world that that offshore dollar system created and it isn't going away in a hurry. And so those are the sort of structural reasons. Some of this is also about confidence. I mean, you have to kind of believe in the American state, frankly, to think that dollars are worth what it says they're worth on the piece of paper or whatever it is that you have that tells you you own dollars. Is there anything that a president like this one could do that would sufficiently shake people's confidence in the American state that could change that dynamic? So I I completely get what you're saying. There are all these things that kind of baked into how we've done it for a long time. It's really hard to change it. There isn't an alternative currency. The euro is not that alternative currency. The Chinese are not going to be able to create an alternative currency. There are no other takers on the out there, unless we've missed one. And yet you've got an American political system which is doing things that might shake people's confidence in the American state. I'm somewhat sceptical about this, but I recognise that there are people in the American political system, if you like, itself, that perhaps take a different view of that. And I think one of the things that's interesting, because it's very, very topical, is what Obama and Kerry were saying when the Iran nuclear deal was being made. Both of them, particularly Kerry, but Obama at least once, basically said, if we don't get this deal to work and our European counterparts go back to sanctions, it threatens the dollar's position as a reserve currency. Now, I don't actually understand why it does. You can see the European states don't particularly like sanctions against Iran, and they do pose fierce problems for Iran because Iran is effectively shut out of the dollar, shut out of the American banking system. But the fact that Iran shut out of the American banking system and the Europeans would like to do more trade with Iran doesn't seem to me to be a reason why the dollar's position as a global reserve currency is is threatened. But there certainly are American politicians that want to use arguments about the dollar's position as a reserve currency, I would say, to get what they want rather than because it's genuine. But at a certain point, if enough politicians are sort of casting doubt on the dollar's position, then it is undermining of confidence. Does the fact that all the states that are candidates look so unappealing mean that we might have a cryptocurrency, reserve currency, a completely private one? It is. I mean, there's certainly the case that both Russia and China, particularly actually Russia, are extremely interested in cryptocurrency issues and that they, I think, probably may hope that that is the way out of the dollar system for them. But that's such uncharted territory. And and I don't think it does anything to address the fact that the financial system has worked off this offshore dollar credit system since perhaps the 1970s, certainly in the run-up to what happened in um, 2008. And there are very few people understand, I'm not pretending for a moment, I understand how that Works. The Fed didn't seem to understand how that worked for. Does anybody um, understand how it worked? There's a guy called um, Jeffrey Snyder, who is where I've learned this stuff from. And we I should think, get him on. <laughs> <laughs> is he real or is he? he a no, no, he's real. He's an bot. he's an investment analyst. I'll tweet the 
link to the website. He understands this, but he's on a lone crusade, I think, about understanding it. For a reserve currency to operate, you do have to have confidence in that currency, which means having confidence in the state that issues it. Is it not possible that the extent to which Donald Trump politicises US monetary policy by questioning or bringing into question the independence of the Federal Reserve. If that becomes a repeated thing where you begin to actually wonder the extent to which the Federal Reserve is able to operate fully independent from government, would that not be the kind of thing that would issue some sort of change into the international financial system? That's actually what happened where Congress was concerned with the Fed back in 2008 when they began to understand what had gone on. Because once Congress in 2009, 2010 realised that the Fed had had to bail out all these European banks, essentially, because of their dollar shortages, then the Federal Reserve Board was subject to quite strong attack, ferocious attack in Congress. It actually had to change the way in which it was supporting the European banks and move to this dollar swap system that extended right the way through the um, Eurozone crisis. I think the context in which both Trump as a candidate but also Sanders as a candidate attacked the Federal Reserve Board in trying to win their respective parties' nominations came out of that context as well. So I think that we're already in that. And the dollar's position, and in some sense it is paradoxical that the dollar's position has actually strengthened, I think, since 2008 rather than weakened. But I think the crux of it is is the fact that the Fed had to become the global lender of last resort to deal with what happened in 2008. And in that sense, the dollar's position as the world's reserve currency is more entrenched than it was, despite the fact that on the oil side of it, there's reasons to think it could be going in a weaker direction. We'll tweet those links to Diane's charts, to Helen's guru and everyone else. We're actually going to be putting out an extra episode of Talking Politics this week because let's not beat about the bush. I've got a book out. It's called How Democracy Ends. The lecture that we broadcast just at the new year on that theme is what lies behind the book. And so we're going to have a little reminder of that lecture and also talk a bit about what's in my book. That will be available this weekend. If you subscribe, you'll get it automatically. If you don't subscribe, please do, and then you'll get it automatically. And next week, in our regular slot, we're going to be talking to the man who is in some sense our boss, Stephen Toop, who runs Cambridge University, and we're going to be talking to him about the politics of higher education. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.